Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey diverges from the Exodus series to speak on how to stay steadfast in the faith. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Paul, at the end of his life, would write in 2 Timothy that uh, he's, he's writing to Timothy, and this is what he says. He goes, he goes, I have run my race. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. And he goes, because of that, there is a crown laid up for me in the future, a crown of righteousness. And it's a, it's a stunning little line that he puts there because you got to think that like, this is the Apostle Paul and he's getting ready to die and you're getting his final, basically his final um, words on his deathbed. He's like, hey, listen, I've done it and I've done it really well and I've kept the faith my entire life. And I've always been enamored with those verses because that's what I want to be, right? Like, I don't know how often you guys think about the day that you're going to die, probably not very often, Right? But I, I want to be that guy who's like, I'm facing death's door, man. I've got all my family around me and I don't look around with a bunch of regret. But instead, I'm like, I've kept the faith. Against all odds, I've run my race. I've fought a good fight. And that's what I want you guys to do. And you may not realize this, but that's kind of like my, my true north in ministry. My favorite thing in the world to do, uh, it used to be really like just encouraging the saints. And like every time I'd see people, I'd be like, I love you. And I still do that, right? Because I still love you. But, but if I had to like tell you what my personal calling is, like in ministry, it may not be in our mission statement, but it really is. I want to equip Christians that are going to last. I want to help create Christians that are going to stand the test of time. Right? I want to create Christians and, and equip Christians that are going to endure and persevere both in trial and in tribulation and in suffering, but also in success and in plenty and wealth. Because both of those things, let's be honest, come with their own set of problems. Both of those come with their own set of temptations. And the person who may, may do really well under trials and suffering may not do really well under success and comfort. And that's my goal more than anything. And here's the thing. The Bible tells us that there is a day that's going to hit the earth, an hour that's going to hit the earth where Christians are going to walk away from the Lord. And it's very clear and it's very prevalent, right? And this idea, we're going to read it. I'm going to read it to you in a minute. This idea is called the apostasy. And it's, this, uh, it's, it's, it's a group of Christians who are saying, I'm no longer a Christian. Or if they're not saying it, they're living that way. And I, I don't want to ever find myself in that category, and I don't ever want to find you in that category. We need to create Christians that last, that stand the test of time. We need Christians that when the age of the, or the culture of the world is wicked and godless and the culture of the church is apathetic and deceived because everything that can be shaken will be shaken, We want to be Christians that cling to our Bibles and cling to one another, amen? We want to be able to say that our love for the Lord never waned, regardless of culture, and we want to say that our faithfulness to the Bible never once wavered. And when that hour hits, guys, it's going to be be intense. The Bible says that that it's, it's going to get... Slowly and steadily more intense as we come closer to the last days. And the idea is this imagine like temptation right now is like a level five. Well, in the last days, it's going to be a level 10, and we're not going to go from level five to level 10 overnight. It's a slow fade, as the good old Casting Crown song said. 
Oma Baptist said amen. Right? It's a slow fade. What we find is that it's not just temptation that's going to hit the earth at an unprecedented level. It's deception that's going to hit the earth at an unprecedented level. This idea of the apostasy, it, it, it comes almost in two forms, typically. What you'll find in the Bible is it speaks to two different forms of walking away from the Lord. The first would be renouncing, and the second would be exchanging. Renouncing and exchanging. It's the idea of the first one, renouncing, would be that, that Satan is doing everything that he can do to get you to walk away to where you go from Bible-believing, God-loving Christian to I don't believe the Bible, I don't love God, I don't care about God, I hate God. Right? That's renouncing. I was a Christian. I am no longer a Christian. That's announcing. That's renouncing. Exchanging is a little bit trickier, and exchanging is actually where it gets, it gets a little hard to navigate because exchanging is I'm going to keep the banner of Christian over top. I'm going to keep the banner of Christian on my church sign, but I'm going to exchange the parts of the Bible that I don't like. I'm going to exchange the parts of the Bible that make me feel uh, feel bad. I'm going to exchange um, aspects of Jesus. I mean, I'm going to exchange parts of the actual gospel. And I'm going to insert things that I like instead in my own application, in my own interpretation. And then what you're left with is you're no longer worshiping the God of the Bible, but you're worshiping the God of your own desires and your own imagination. And the Bible says that there will be a time where Christians do this, not as like, you know, uh, the, the fringe Christians over here, but that the predominant culture on the earth, as it relates to the banner of Christian, are people who have done this very thing. That they still have Christian as their name. They still have Christian on their church signs, but they look nothing like Jesus. They act nothing like Jesus. They think nothing like Jesus. Now, as much as my heart is to equip you guys to stand in that hour of trial. As much as it's clearly the Lord's desire to help you stand in that hour, the reality is all hell has been unleashed on you and on me to get us to do the opposite. Satan is just as hell-bent as you can imagine at trying to get you to twist the faith and abandon the faith. And he will do everything at his, at his um, um, disposal. He has spared no expense in his effort to try to get you to go from I love Jesus to I hate Jesus, and he's working in ways that you can't possibly imagine. Because here's the thing, the primary way that we think that Satan is working in our culture today is through the LGBTQ movement. I'm just telling you, that's what we think. We're like, oh, see, that's Satan. That's how he's going to get the Christians. And I'm just telling you, there are far more dangerous and far more subtle ways that he's coming after us, and we're not even prepared for it. And the Bible is so good because it actually spells out the way that he's going to do this. It's, I'm really grateful for the word, amen? Because it does. He spells it out in very clear lettering. And I'm going to give you, I got six of them. We're probably only going to get through three, right? And the, but the three, I think most important, subtle ways that the enemy is going to get you to go from God-fearing, God-loving Christian to abandoning the faith. Now, I will tell you this, that there is a great debate that's happening in the church that's been happening for over several hundred years. Some of you, you're already starting to feel it right now in the room. And the debate is this. Well, if you can abandon the faith where you ever really saved to begin with, right? And I'll just tell you guys this. Here's the deal. There's two predominant theological camps. There's Calvinists and there's Armenian. Calvinists are wrong and Armenians are right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. 
But I really am just kidding. I love both. But here's the idea. You don't hear about this idea, this concept of the great falling away. Maybe you guys do because you interact with me a lot. But I'm telling you right now, if you go Google it, go YouTube, sermons on the great falling away, you're not going to see a whole lot about it. Neither camp likes to talk about it. The first camp doesn't like to talk about it because if, if they don't think it's a risk, if, if you're never, if you really, if you were born again, you could never really fall away, then, then it's not a risk. And if it's not a risk, then why talk about it, right? It's a moot point. There's better things to talk about, even though the Bible clearly talks about it. The second camp who would say, yeah, actually you can fall away. You can be a God-fearing, God-believing Christian and you can walk away from the Lord according to Hebrews 6 and other passages. That camp doesn't want to talk about it because they're afraid that it's going to cause Christians to be in great fear and anxiety over their salvation. And I get that. And so what you'll find is that really people don't talk about this. But guys, when I tell you it's in the Bible, it's like, it's not in the Bible like a few verses, okay? Who here believes in speaking in tongues? Who here thinks that's biblical? Okay, you got five verses. I've got at least a dozen gigantic passages that talk about the falling away. And we'll fight people tooth and nail on our five verses on tongues, but we won't touch this subject. And it's really, really important. As a matter of fact, who has ever heard the term be sober-minded in the Bible? Are you guys familiar with any of this? The Bible says, this is really cool. I just, I just happened to look this up on my own study. Um, check this out. Seven times in the New Testament, there's a command given for Christians to be sober-minded. Seven times. All seven times, they are in conjunction with a teaching about the end of the age. Isn't that fascinating? All seven times, it's either Paul or it's Peter, and he's talking about the hour that's coming, and he says, therefore, be sober-minded, be clear, be calm, don't be drunk, right? And it's, it's not just don't be drunk, that's one of the reasons you shouldn't be drunk, but it's be vigilant, be alert, It's all about the end of the age. And I will just tell you, if you can't stand in the hour that we're in today, there is no way that you're going to be able to stand in the hour that's coming on the earth. If you can't manage to figure out what's true and and the the deception that's in the earth today, you're not going to be able to figure out what's true then. And if you can't stand against pornography now, there is no chance in hell, excuse my language, that you're going to be able to get free at the end of the age. And so, like retirement... A future day should affect how I live today, right? That's how we need to look at the end of the age. Right now, you and I were in training. And if we fail the test, there's probably a good chance we're gonna fail at the end. And so we wanna be really faithful. We wanna be really sober-minded as we live today. And so I don't know what theological camp, some of you, there's like five of you in the room who you, you understand Calvinism, you understand Arminianism to a degree. And I would just say, if it helps you to think about people who have fallen away as having never been saved to begin with, by all means, it doesn't matter. Because the reality is the Bible is very clear that there are people who will at least profess to be believers who will cease to be believers. There are people who will have the name and they will not have a born again spirit. And so we need to be mindful lest we become one of those because this is not a witch hunt kind of sermon. This is not one of those things that's supposed to make you look around at other people and be like, hey, you're falling away or hey, you're an apostate. This has nothing to do with them and everything to do with you and everything to do with me. The Bible says we're to test ourselves to make sure that we're still in the faith. And so when we're, when we're looking at the ways that Satan will try to get us to abandon ship, what we're actually doing is we're taking inventory, guys, and we're going, okay, how is the enemy working against me? And what can I do? Where are the weak spots in my armor 
that I can strengthen. Does that make sense? Okay. The Bible's clear in its warning of a coming day where believers will abandon proper doctrine for something less offensive and less intrusive. Second Timothy tells us that they will swap the truth of God for a lie and they will flock together to hear teachers that tickle their ear is the, is the language that the Bible uses. I get that that's silly, but you all know what it means. Let me read it. Let me show you that I'm not just making stuff up. Second Timothy or Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through four. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through four. You ready? Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Okay, that's his second coming, right? That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by spirit or a message or a letter as if it's from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he just said, hey, listen, as in regards to the day of the Lord, don't be deceived. Don't think that it's already come. Look at the next verse. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy, the great falling away, comes first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes the seat of the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. And the idea is this, that do not think that the day of the Lord is going to come. The second coming of God is going to come without the great falling away first. Matthew 24, this is Jesus talking about the end of the age. It's fascinating. Everybody in here has asked me at some point, basically everybody, right? If I want to talk about the end of the age, if I want to learn about the end of the age, where do I start? Start Matthew 24. It's the most concise chapter of Jesus himself saying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. And it's very helpful. And this is what he says concerning the end of the age. He says, they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one endure, who endures until the end will be saved. Again, that same language of endurance. First Timothy chapter four, but the spirit explicitly says that in the later times, many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Are you seeing that this is more biblical than maybe we think it is? This idea of a Christian falling away. Now, check this out, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is 1 through 5. You guys are all familiar with it, and it's very um, helpful. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and boastful and arrogant and revilers and disobedient to parents and ungrateful and unholy and unloving and irreconcilable and malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I've always read that passage and I always thought he was talking about the world. I'm going to be honest with you. When I read that, I'm like, oh my gosh, we're in the end times because that's exactly how the world is acting. But you realize that he's actually not talking about the world. The world has always been that way. He's talking about the church. You say, well, prove it. Look at the next verse. They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. In other words, they live this lifestyle that is counter to Jesus. Their heart is counter to Jesus but they hold to a form of godliness. 
Here's what he's saying. He goes, hey, they look the part. They look godly. They're not. I love what he says. They're they're malicious gossips without self-control, arrogant, and he says, disobedient to parents. There's a little plug for next week's sermon as we talk about honoring your mother and father. So this idea that a Christian could fall away, that a Christian could abandon the Lord, it is very real and it's very prevalent in scripture. And I just gave you four passages. I promise you, I could give you a lot more. I could probably give you close to 20. The Bible is very clear on this issue. And so the question is, hey, if Satan is working overtime, trying to get me to bail, how's he gonna do it? And what do I do about it? And so let me give you the first thing, uh, the first method, the first road to abandoning the faith. False teaching, number one, false teaching. Okay, as clear is the apostasy is in the Bible, so clear too is its primary cause. False teachers. False teachers. There's so many passages. That's why we just read a couple of them that talk about the danger of sitting under a false teacher. Now, here's the thing. Everybody in this room at some point probably will go on a theological false teacher witch hunt. Don't do that. I'm gonna be very clear. Don't do that because While false teaching is one of the primary reasons that people will abandon Jesus, while false teaching is one of the reasons that people will exchange uh, the truth of God for a lie, that's actually not the primary cause. The primary cause isn't that there are teachers out there that are teaching poor things or poor theology or bad things. The primary cause is theological laziness. Biblical negligence and theological laziness. Now, here's what I mean by that. We in the West, we are so susceptible to false teaching and we probably don't even realize it. And we're susceptible to it because we're busy. Guys, our nation uh, and, and the way that we operate, guys, we get so busy, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Man, if you're like me, you guys aren't like me because you don't have kids, but one day you will and you're probably still busy now. I've got little kids. I've got a wife. I've got a job. I've got responsibilities. I've got to take care of the house. I've got a lot of things that I have to do in any given day. And if I'm not careful, and if you're not careful, the thing that gets put on the back burner is our own study of the word, right? Because we're like, yeah, I go to a good church. They'll feed me. I'll get the Bible on Sunday. Maybe you'll be super radical and you'll get the Bible on Wednesday night. Maybe you go to a house church and you're like, that's how I get my Bible. And here's the thing, guys. Theological laziness is the very thing that makes us susceptible to false teaching. Because if you don't know the word, you're going to just buy what everybody says, hook, line, and sinker. And here's here's the, your theology, your theological system is the most important thing that you have outside of your salvation because it is the lens by which you view everything. You may not realize it. Some of you guys, you may have an aversion to theology because you just, you associate that with the Bible nerds or the, the theological, you know, um, the, the snobs, the Bible snobs or whatever, right? But, but listen, your theological system is absolutely vital. And if, because by that, it's the lens by which you view the world. It's the filter by which you hear the voice of the Lord. It's the, it's the very mechanism by which you commune with God. Your theology tells you, hey, this is what the Lord's saying in the moment. Now you could say, well, wait a second, the Holy Spirit does. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a filter there and it is your system of theology. So if you think that God, for instance, um, doesn't do healing, 
You may hear the Holy Spirit actually saying, hey, go pray for that guy for healing, but your theology is going to filter that before it gets to you. Does that make sense? Your theology is the mean by which you figure out your place in the world. Theology is, is the very thing that dictates how we relate to one another. It's so vital. And listen, my biggest fear for the church in the West is that the most important thing that we have, our theological system, is no more than an amalgamation of other people's revelation. And what we've done is we've just said, we've said I like what that person says, I'm going to adopt that. I like what this person says, I'm going to adopt that. I like what the preacher says over here, I'm going to adopt that. And we form a theological system and it isn't actually from reading the word, it's from listening to other teachers. And here's the thing about teachers, they're really good. And I'm gonna tell you something about false teachers, they're really good. The thing that makes a false teacher dangerous is that they look good on the outside and they sound good and they will preach a sermon that's got just enough Bible to sound good and to sound right and to sound biblical, but it's not. And we're so ripe to be deceived by a false teacher simply because we're lazy, simply because we're busy and we don't wanna actually do the hard work of waking up and opening up our Bibles and, 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 and laboring through the scripture. And listen, I've done this. I spent years of my Christianity like this. And, and I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna tell you guys something that I don't really tell a whole lot of people, but I think it will be applicable for you. Many of us have staunch theological convictions that we will die on a hill for, right? It is Calvinism. I've studied it. God heals all the time. I've studied it. It's pre-trib, it's post-trib, whatever, right? We have theological convictions that we will die and we will fight to the death for. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know very many Christians who have actually read the entirety of the Bible. And I will talk to people often and they're like, yeah, well, this is what the Bible says. And I'm like, hey, have you read this other book in the Bible? And they're like, well, no, I, I haven't read that. And I'm like, hey, you probably should read the whole Bible before you make a very staunch theological stance on something. I was talking to somebody just like literally like two days ago and they were trying to explain to me, they were literally hitting all these like these um, false teachers, right? And they were like, so-and-so is a false teacher, so-and-so is a false teacher. And I'm like, hey, how much of the Bible have you read? I said, there's 31,000 verses. How many, do you, how many do you know? And they were like, I don't know, like 10, right? And I was like, okay, so you know 10 verses and you're qualified to tell me what a false teacher is. Right? Now that, that should hit home. Because if we don't know the word, then we're not qualified, first of all, to say anybody's a false teacher. Right? And, and secondly, we're ripe for deception. And what we have to do, guys, we have to put in the effort, in the work, to open our Bible and to study it. And, and here's the way I like to look at it, right? So, so typically in the West, here's what we do. We take our teachers and our preachers and we, you know, whatever, whether it's on YouTube or podcasts or whether it's, it's our actual preacher and teacher, and we use them to create our, our theological worldview and our theological system. And then our Bible reading is simply fact-checking that person. And our Bible reading is supplementary in our forming of our theology, and it's not the primary method by which we do it. Now, leaders and teachers are very important, and you need to listen to leaders and teachers, and it's, it is important to listen to those guys, but they should only ever be supplementary at best. If you are taking, listen to me right now, guys, if you are taking what I say all of the time, and you're just applying it and going, yeah, well, that sounded really good, 
but you're not in your Bible, you better hope to high heaven that I'm right. Because here's the thing. One day, you're going to stand before Jesus and I'm not going to be with you. One day, you and I will stand face to face with God and we will have no excuses and we will have nobody to look to. My wife won't be there. My kids won't be there. My boss won't be there. My pastors won't be there. I will not be able to look at Jesus and say, yes, but Lord, they said. Because I will have no excuse. Everybody in here has access to a Bible. And everybody in here is smart enough to read the Bible and understand it. Okay, it's not some mystical book. It's not really that complicated. I talk to people all the time. They're like, they can tell me the deep, uh, they can literally tell me the deepest like little lore on Lord of the Rings. I met a guy who could speak Elvish, but he can't read the Bible. And I'm like, dude, that's crazy. If you can read Lord of the Rings, you can read the Bible. Does that make sense? Listen, here's why this is important. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter three, I'm getting ready to read it. Revelation chapter two. There's a letter to the church of Thyatira. And, and you guys may know that letter because it's the one that talks about Jezebel. Are you guys familiar with that letter? Right, Jezebel. Now, now here's the thing. Jezebel is a false teacher. And, and so many ladies, you think Jezebel is something that it's not. Um, unless you are teaching people to um, be immoral, um, they are not Jezebel. And, and unless that person is teaching someone to be immoral, then you're not, they're not Jezebel. So let me just be very clear on that. But look, look at what Revelation 20 says. I want you to see the judgment that's pronounced on the teacher, the false teacher. And then I want you to see the judgments that's pronounced on the people following her. Because what we like to do is we like to think, well, God's just going to judge Jezebel, but we're going to get away out of ignorance. Look at this. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her, the false teacher, time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Now we're going to switch over to those who followed her and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts. That's intense. Judgment doesn't just hit the false teacher, it hits those who are theologically lazy and biblically negligent. It hits those who followed hook, line, and sinker simply because they didn't want to do their due diligence because they were busy or they had a long day. And in this day and age, there is no shortage of false teaching that's hitting the earth. I gave you guys a statistic a few weeks ago, 37%, according to this new survey, it's, very, um, it's a verified survey, 37% of senior pastors, hold, or, or of all pastors in America, hold to a biblical worldview, 37%. That means 37% would say that Jesus is the son of God, that the Bible is inerrant, that Satan is real and not a symbol, that um, you can't earn your way into heaven and that Jesus is a supreme being. That's horrifying. 37%. And if we do not get into the word, if we do not labor and study ourselves, guys, there's no end 
to the, to the, to the manner in which we can be deceived. Let me read this to you. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But what I'm doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded highly um, as we are. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. There are people out there that are sent from Satan to derail you. And the only way in which you will be protected is if you dig into the word. And I mean it, like really study. Now here's the deal. That doesn't mean you have to know every single verse. That does not mean that you have to spend hours in the word every day. I'm not saying that but it does mean you got to read it. And it does mean that probably needs to be the primary um, source and primary builder of your theology, not everybody else's revelation and everybody else's application of the word. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, what's the second reason people are going to fall away? The Bible says offense with God. Offense with God, that people are going to get offended with the way that he does things. And this really ties into that first point um, with uh, the theological laziness and the biblical um, negligence. And, and I've shared this with you guys, but remember Moses' cry, he goes, oh Lord, teach me your ways that I may know you. So many of us, because we're not in the Bible and because most of our theological system is created on a Sunday morning, our, our framework for how God operates is incomplete. And so when God starts doing things in a manner that we weren't prepared for, it's easy for us to get really offended. If Let me just give you this. There's, a, there's a, a prominent theological camp out there that is hitting the churches today. And it's this, that God doesn't do judgment, that God doesn't do suffering. That those things are incompatible with a loving God. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, it's so prevalent that it's probably at a church that you've listened to their pastor or pastors, you've listened to their worship leaders. It's like super prevalent. And their underlying core belief, and they're unapologetic about it, is that God doesn't do judgment and God doesn't do suffering. That those are only, that, that suffering only comes from the devil. And that judgments of God were fulfilled. And so all that's there now is grace. Now, just imagine for a second, this is you. Imagine you grew up in that church, but you didn't do the hard work and you didn't labor in the word. Imagine you didn't, you didn't whip out your Bible uh, more than Sunday morning. And your entire theological system was created by one teacher. And then you lose a loved one. What do you think that does for your faith? And then all of a sudden, judgments start hitting the earth. And you're standing there and you're going, I don't have a, I don't have a reference for this. This isn't what I was told God does. And it's like, it's like removing a Jenga block. And all of a sudden, the whole thing topples. And I've watched this very thing happen to people. I've watched people who, who they didn't have a proper theological grid for suffering because the only church that they went to only ever talked about God's love, only ever talked about God's, lo or God's grace. 
And when, when suffering came and when trial came, they missed the parts of Peter that says, hey, listen, don't be surprised when God sends suffering your way. They missed James that says, consider it pure joy when facing trials and tribulations. They missed it when, 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 when Paul said, hey, when I suffer, I rejoice because I'm actually filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. And they don't have a grid for that. All they think is that God loved them and, and therefore that God's love equals, equals comfort. And God, he would never cause something horrible or painful in my life. And you guys, you've been a part of gatekeepers, so you just already know that it's not true. Like we've talked about that all the time. But there are so many Christians out there, guys, they don't have a grid for that. And when God starts operating in a way that they didn't have a grid for and starts doing things according to the Bible that they didn't read, they are ripe for offense. And it's the same thing that happened with John the Baptist. He didn't have the right grid for Jesus. Now, this is the forerunner, guys. This is like, we model a lot of things after John the Baptist around here. I'm on the John the Baptist bandwagon. I think he's awesome. But this is what he missed. He went out, he preached Jesus. He preached repentance. He said, the Lord is coming. But it didn't look like he thought it was gonna look like. And I'm convinced that he messed up the first coming and the second coming as he was reading the Old Testament. And so he thought things were going to look like they're going to look like in the second coming when everything, when there's no more tears and, 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 and Jerusalem comes out of heaven and, and, and it's like the millennial reign and everything's good. And he's looking at that and he's going, wait a second, this isn't how my life is going. And he stands up against Herod and he starts declaring Herod's own sinfulness and it lands him in jail and he's getting ready to lose his head. And he looks around and he's going, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I, this isn't what I have a reference for. I didn't think the Bible said this. Jesus, you were supposed to come back and you were supposed to establish your kingdom. I'm laying in jail, getting ready to lose my head for this. And he gets offended with the Lord. This is the same guy that Jesus said, there's no better human being on earth. He gets offended with God. He sends his disciples to go talk to Jesus. And his disciples go, hey, listen, John, he's wondering, he's getting ready to die. Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus responds to him by going, tell him the lame walk and the deaf hear and the, the blind receive their sight and the gospel is preached to the poor. And oh, by the way, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. And I think that's a perfect picture of many at the end of the age, they're going to become offended with God and walk away because God didn't do things like they thought he was going to do things. Now, listen, at some level, we're all going to be caught off guard. All right. So let me just be very clear. The Bible says we know in part, right? We prophesy in part. Not, not all of us have all this thing figured out. But there are some very clear things in Scripture. Like if I were going to talk to you about Scripture, like the suffering, uh, a theology of suffering, I could pull out dozens and dozens of passages that talk about suffering and how you and I are supposed to go through suffering. So to ignore that in scripture, that's a big deal. But there are lots of people who do it. Pre-trib, it's a great example of this. I used to, I was staunch pre-tribulation rapture, rapture viewpoint. I thought that when the end of the age hit and the rapture came, that it was going to take all the Christians up, like left behind. Everybody ever see left behind? That's what I kind of thought in times was supposed to look like. Now go ahead and ask me how much of the Bible did I read at that time? Almost none. But all my, all my theology came from a movie series that was poorly done, right? 
And so I just assumed. And then I go into Bible college, right? Because I'm not qualified to read the word of my own. I need to, I need to hear what these professors of the Bible tell me. And I paid $750 to go through an eschatology class with a guy who's got a PhD in this thing. And he begins to tell me, we're going to get out of here. We're going to be raptured before the tribulation ever happens, before anything bad happens. Don't you worry. We're going to be saved. As a matter of fact, anybody who doesn't say that, not only are they wrong, they're foolish because everybody agrees with us. And I remember having to do a paper um, on the Olivet Discourse. And I remember uh, having to do a bunch of, go through his notes. And he specifically says, if you believe in a post-tribulation rapture viewpoint, then you are in the smallest minority because nobody reputable believes that. That's what they said. Okay, now here's the thing. I was pretty, I was pretty, uh, I was pretty convinced in this whole pre-tribulation rapture viewpoint. And then I come and I talk to Billy Humphrey and Jamie and all those guys, and they said, hey, let's, let's just kind of re-examine our theology a little bit. Let's re-examine our eschatology. We want to make sure that we're doing things right. And I was prepared to refute them with all of my pre-trib Bible college nonsense, right? And you know what they said? They said, let's just open the Bible and see what it says. Let's just, let's, let's go from there. And I was like, don't need the Bible to tell me what to believe. I know what I believe. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, listen, some of you have been there. So they open up Matthew chapter Matthew 24, and it says, at the end of the age, you'll see the abomination of desolation, and then tribulation will hit the, hit the earth in a winter that it's never hit before, and it will never hit again. And then immediately after the tribulation of those days, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and he'll gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. And I'm going, immediately after the tribulation? That, that's not what I was taught. No, 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 no. This is, this is, this can't be right. This is, I was taught that we're, that, that we don't, endure, that we don't have to deal with all the tribulation, but this is saying that we do have to deal with all the tribulation. And I was just so dumbfounded. And here's the thing, guys, I was, I felt lied to. I felt so lied to because the Bible's like not just abundantly clear in that aspect, it's abundantly clear in a lot of other things that, and I realized in that moment, oh my gosh, I believe something because I didn't study the Bible first on my own. I just bought what other people said, and I got offended. Now, luckily, I didn't get offended at the Lord. But there's a lot of people, when they find out that something they believe is a lie, they get offended with God and they bail. I'm all over the place. What's the last reason that people will abandon the faith? Um, And this this one's dear to me, forsaking the church. Forsaking the church. Um, open up your Bibles. I want you to see this for yourself. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to turn to verse 24. Would you read along with me? You guys see there's a page break. There's a little, uh, a little subheading in between that passage and one right underneath it. Right? You guys see that? Okay, ignore that. I hope you know at this point, those are not inspired by the Lord. We put them there so that we can kind of navigate the Bible a little bit better. But when Hebrews was written, that did not exist and verses did not exist. Okay, so that subheading is going to get in the way if you let it. I want you to start in verse 24 and we're going to read down to verse 27. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not 
neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of a fire that will consume the adversaries. That's a scary passage, isn't it? And for years, I looked at that passage and I started where that stupid little subheading was. For if we continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. And I'm going, okay, I can get my head wrapped around that. I can get my head wrapped around, okay, I've been saved, I've been born again, I loved God, but then I basically just continually rebelled against God and, 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 and Jesus' blood doesn't cover continuous rebellion. I'm like, I can, I can get that. I can get my head wrapped around it. But that's actually not what he's saying. It goes deeper than that. He connects the idea of sinning willfully and therefore making the sacrifice null and void, he connects that with forsaking the gathering of the saints. Read it again. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that is the return of the Lord, drawing near. For, if you see the word for, Imagine it says, therefore, and you need to go and see what it is there for. It's talking, it's direct reference to the passage above it. Therefore, in light of this, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. And he connects these ideas that if you're gonna end up in rebellion, like clear a rebellion, the first step is forsaking the assembly. And I have seen this play out more times than you can count. It is like clockwork. When somebody gets out of community, it is only a matter of time before they all but bail. It's only a matter of time before compromise goes unchecked because they're hidden and there's no, there is no accountability. And next thing you know, they've abandoned everything that they held dear once. But I'll tell you this, what's the first or what's the primary reason that people will forsake the assembling? What's the reason that people will forsake the church? Let's be honest, it's church hurt. It's somebody said something that offended them. It's that somebody wasn't perfect. It's that they saw hypocrisy in the church. It's that they didn't like the way the leadership was doing things or you know, whatever it is, it's church hurt. And we've all been there. We've all been hurt by the church. Absolutely. And I will just tell you, if that's you, if some of you guys, you've been dramatically and deeply um, wounded by the church, there's a chance, there's a real chance that that hurt is valid because we're not perfect. I know, I know, listen, I know, um, I, I know of a, a godly, wonderful young lady who she literally was abused by her pastor systematically time in, uh, time and again, over the course of a couple of years. Okay, so I, I, I know that church hurt is very real. I know what it's like to walk somebody through the abuse of, of, a, of a church leader. But most of the people who walk away because they're hurt by the church, it's not worth being that hurt over. I'm just gonna tell you. You didn't get invited to a place. You didn't feel like it was warm enough. You didn't feel like, uh, you know, so-and-so didn't preach your style of message. And I got really, you guys, I got really angry one time at the church. Um, and I was going to leave. I was on staff and I was like, not only was I going to leave the church, I was going to leave the global church. I was like, I'm flipping done with this hypocritical, ridiculous, 
group of people. I hate Christians. I'd much rather be around non-Christians because they're so much easier to deal with because at least they're honest and at least they're authentic. Right? That was literally my, my train of thinking. And I'm railing against the church and, and Christopher, Pastor Christopher, he is kind enough to rebuke the fire out of me. Did you know what he says? I'll never forget it, man. It stuck with me. He goes, he said, hey, Casey, because you know, my wife, her name's Christine. He goes, you know, Christine has a lot of problems. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I don't, you know, well, it's kind of random, right? And he's like, Christine has a lot of issues. And he goes, I just want to remind you that you don't have the authority or the business telling me what my wife's issues are. He says, I'm aware of them, but don't you dare start bashing my wife in front of me. He goes, I see the issues, I'll fix them, but don't talk about my wife. And I was like, that's, what you, that's kind of so out of left field. And he goes, yeah, but that's what you're doing with the Lord. He said, you're sitting there railing against the bride and expecting the approval of the groom. Because you can't do that. And I just felt so sucker punched. I was like, wait, what? And here's the, here's the deal, guys. I get the church is going to hurt you. And I get that Christians are not always going to act like Christians. I totally get it. But that does not give us the right to forsake the bride because you cannot on any level forsake the bride and possibly think that you're going to get the groom. Does that make sense? Jesus loves the bride. He is jealous for his bride. And he is fully aware of all of her issues and all of her mistakes. And he does not need you to start accusing his wife. He knows who his wife is. But that's where we can go, man. We can, we, can get, we can get angry and we can get offended and we can be hurt because the church said something or did something that we didn't like or somebody in the church said something that we didn't like and all of a sudden we bail on the Lord or we bail on the church. And I'm gonna tell you, it's, if you can bail on the bride, it's only a matter of time before you will bail on the groom. It's just, just the way that it works because you can't hate what he loves. You can't be offended and angry it's something that he cherishes. And yes, I realize the church is not perfect. Yes, I realize that we are broken and we mess up and we make all kinds of mistakes and we, we say things that we shouldn't say and we don't say things that should be said. I get that sometimes that we're, we're, we're hypocritical, absolutely. But isn't that everywhere else too? Like, like we kind of act sometimes that that's unique to the church. That's not unique to the church. That's unique to humanity. Now, I get that we, we're like, well, wait a second. The church shouldn't act like that, though. Well, it shouldn't. But I'm going to be honest with you. You may be church hurt over other people. You may be hurt over other Christians, but I promise you there are other Christians who are hurt over you, too. Promise. And we have a choice to make. Are we going to forsake the assembly of ourselves? Are we going to get church hurt and angry and are we going to leave? Or... Are we going to choose to give grace? Are we going to choose to do the 1 Corinthians 13 and love one another, which is believing the best and hoping the best? Are we going to give each other the benefit of the doubt? Are we just going to take our ball and go? And the, the warning in Hebrews 10 is if you take your ball and go, you may not come back. You just need to know that. You may get so far lost, so far gone, that you completely abandon the Lord. So I'll give you, you guys can stand. I'm going to give you three other ones that are just brief. I'm just going to one-liner them. And I'm going to ask you to go home and study them yourselves. 
the first reason that people will abandon the Lord is due to false teaching. The second is due to offense with God. And the third is due to forsaking the church. And the fourth, fifth, and sixth is this, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin hardens the heart and erodes the faith. And if you leave your sin unchecked, it will harden your heart and it will erode your faith. But the fifth of the sixth reasons are found in the parable of the sower. And it's this, the deceitfulness of wealth, the cares of this life, and persecution due to the word. And so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to go home and I want you to meditate and chew on Matthew chapter 13 on your own, okay? And I want you to ask the Lord, where are you at risk? Where is your armor weak? Where are these strategies at play in your life coming against you so that you can strengthen them? Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.